Welcome to the Global Futures Podcast with me, Joel Sandy. Cities are often seen as the deepest level of democracy, where state actors are closest to citizens' needs and the opportunities to plan and implement together are the greatest. Protests and frustration is also frequently the most intense when local governments are the target. Joining us today to discuss citizen-led change at the city level is Jody Alamaya, a Global Governance Future 2030 Fellow and Independent City Development Consultant from Cape Town, South Africa. So welcome, Jody, to uh, the Global Futures Podcast and uh, welcome to Paris. Thank you, Joel. It's good to be here. Uh, let's start by asking you perhaps one of the most obvious questions is, you know, tell us about your work with civil society advocacy groups and activist movements where you come from, which is Cape Town, South Africa. Sure. So I have a history of working for what we call intermediary organizations, um, and we kind of fill the slot between civil society and the public sector. Um, it's a unique position that gives me access to information about what's going on inside the public sector, what's pushing them, what's driving them, but also what the interests of activists and organized civil society groups are um, and how they can better sort of plug into uh, broader city governance. Um, my work has focused on mainly city development issues, so a lot to do with uh, mobility, streets development, housing, inclusive economic development, um, innovation and governance and technology. Um, and open and transparent government. You mentioned the word unique. Is, is civil society group and activism something fairly new in South Africa? How long is the history? How active is it? I mean, South Africa has a very particular history with, with civil society, obviously very strong organized mobilization um, in the apartheid era, focusing on um, yeah, addressing apartheid and, and overcoming that. That had very strong ties to both face-based organizations as well as uh, organized political groupings and eventually taking on power. I think what's relatively new is a recognition that the incoming uh, government in itself could not kind of provide everything that was promised in 1994. Um, and our constitution and, and uh, national legislation actually defines government as consisting of citizens to the people shall govern. And so part of gov governance is about relationships with citizens. Um, but a lot of that kind of organizing and structuring of that, we're still learning how to do. I remember in one of our previous discussions, you did mention that activists sometimes fail to understand how to kind of mobilize and, and uh, demand for change when it comes to city governance, which is something you worked on uh, quite a lot. Um, what exactly is missing in their logic so a lot of ordinary people will assume, well, I've done my democratic part or played my role by going to the voting station and, and, and put a mark next to a name. And now I can raise an issue and I assume that the local government will respond in the way that I see is the logical response. So I need better services or I, I think there's an issue with uh, whether it, whatever it is, housing or water. And I assume that what I've requested uh, will just sort of naturally happen. And then we get frustrated as citizens when that isn't the response. And sometimes either nothing happens at all or a complete opposite response happens. Um, and and there can be a bit of a vacuum in understanding of what's happening inside the city government. And that can lead to us coming up with quite uh, sort of sinister conspiracy theories about what's going on. Um, and really what I've come to recognize is often it's 
sometimes it's sinister, but often it's not a very sinister kind of reason. It's just there's a certain set of mechanisms and processes and procedures within government that the average person on the street doesn't understand. And so we don't understand how to leverage those and influence and manipulate those um, to get the outcome that, that we as citizens want. That's interesting because on the one hand, the Constitution says, and you mentioned this, um, you know, the government is uh, formed by the people, for the people, and yet you also mentioned there's a vacuum between you know those who represent uh, ordinary South Africans and those who are on the ground. What is this gap? I mean, when I when I think about it, it seems like there are two different worlds that when they rub up against each other, they realize we're very different. Yet one is meant to represent the other. So is it what what is the ordinary? citizen failing to understand that is happening in the corridors of power, as you say. So it's very easy to use terms like, oh, it's the bureaucracy is failing us or it's politics. That doesn't really mean much. Local government requires representation and you go and you vote and you, and you get in your, your local councillors uh, into, into your structures. It requires administration. Delivering all these kinds of services and goods does require administration and it requires accountability. So administration, accountability and representation are all necessary, but we can, without understanding the mechanisms of them, we can become very um, flippant in our in our critique of how they're failing us or inefficient or, or maybe being um, manipulated by by outside forces. Um, I think what, what government is not very good at doing, at least in South Africa, is making it very transparent and clear and simple to the ordinary citizen what its decision-making processes are, what timelines are for making decisions, for introducing new policy, uh, for approving new budgets, that um, cert- certain things maybe require just a small change and a small tweak. And in that instance, there should be more direct responsiveness and more di- direct accountability to citizens. But sometimes it takes a longer, there's a, a legislated, boring <laughs> process of policy change and planning and budgeting. Um, and sometimes those processes sit across different spheres of government or different parts parts of a city government. And that picture and that process is not very kind of clearly simply presented to the ordinary citizen so that they know where in a particular process to 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 intervene, to comment, to hold to account through legal processes or demonstration, um, and to really understand what is a reasonable time frame for for change on different types of issues. Yeah, you say that right um, that the government should make this more easy and accessible. But your everyday citizen, whether it's in South Africa or most developing countries, even developed countries, would say, "Well, look." I've got other priorities, I've got other concerns, you know, I've got to pay my bills and politics is just not sexy. I rather watch football as an escape route and not look at politics as an escape route. So how do you how do you for example in your sector as you know working with activists and advocacy groups, where do you come in? How do you kind of say, well, let me be the stage manager for this? Sure. So I mean, I think certainly most most citizens have got other concerns. And in South Africa, most citizens are incredibly uh, under huge economic strain and facing a lot of very real daily pressures that, you know, learning how government works is def- definitely not a, not a priority. Um, that I think there's an important role for organized civil society and NGOs to to bridge that gap. And, and in South Africa, we do have a very good network of sort of social justice-based organizations that are using the law, using research and policy, using local media and also using uh, new technology forms of media um, to to bridge that gap, to, to articulate what's really going on inside government, make that more visible and dedicate resources to trying to 
participating in the, in this broader collective governance model um, for the ordinary citizen who's not you know directly linked to, to these uh, organizations or, or, or forms of work um, there there are increasing opportunities to engage directly through uh, new technology through social media through live streaming of certain processes um, we've seen some very clever campaigns back home locally where um, for example, there's a campaign Unite Behind, which actually targets a, a national government organization, but it's focusing on our failing train infrastructure and train services. Mobility touches on every single individual's life. Um, and they they produce campaigns where in public squares at train stations, they would run sort of mock trials of actually taking some of these leaders to court in, in a theater sort of scenario um, and demonstrating what the law says these people are responsible for. And what they should be held accountable for versus the the kind of lived reality, and in that way, mobilizing sort of mass popular support for a broader campaign that forced accountability and forced some uh, ch changes in uh, the management of that organization. I have to ask when I when I think of South Africa, it it seems so European um, in many ways, and yet it is you know in the continent of Africa, and uh, there is so much politics that happens there, and it's. Given the world, you know, people like Nelson Mandela, etc., etc. Is there something unique you would say um, in South African approach to civil society advocacy um, that you can say, you know, this is us, this is how we do it? It's an interesting question. It's something that a lot of academics are looking at right now and really understanding what does democracy look like in in South Africa twenty odd years on, um, and and I think we do have quite a healthy. A civil society group that are using a combination of law, theatre, art, protest to to uh, kind of force their way into into participation processes that, on paper and in law, are meant to be there, but are often very difficult uh, to access. People with greater economic um, power or cultural and sort of identity power have a greater ease of access to these processes than than the people who are quite poor and disenfranchised. So there is a, a growing um, kind of sophistication in in the activist world i do think that the I, th i think it's very easy to romanticize south african civil society as well so it's very easy to talk about how we sing and dance while we protest and uh we we have these wond wonderful kind of mixtures of civil society and faith-based organizations and people move in and out of of political organizations it's very easy to make that romantic and say that it's kind of a, a, um a unique aspect of democracy but what you also see a lot of is increasingly violent protest destruction of infrastructure and property um and and often people who are sitting outside of that form of protest people who are who are more privileged and maybe not that directly involved in civil society action see that and they think there's these very spontaneous people go from being perfectly happy one day to burning infrastructure tomorrow and they're missing the bigger picture of how many attempts there were at engagement that failed and how frustrated people are becoming through multiple different types of attempts at engagement through legitimate processes through uh, structures that are set up in the law um, through formal public participation processes and things like that and just not getting what they expect out of the system. But do you think there's a disillusion towards the democratic processes in South Africa? Because again, going back to the corridors of power, you mentioned a while ago that um, some citizens don't really get what it means, you know, the power, the politics, the upward accountability, etc, etc. And if these kind of even 
let's say those who do understand it are failing to kind of get the results that they're looking for, then what room is there for change and what room is there for, you know, you and other uh, civil society actors to really make an impact? Sure. So I think we, we need to also understand the, what the last 10 years in South Africa has been like. So there has been a disillusionment with democracy because we've had increasing levels of corruption. So, you know, that's that's another level of illogical response from the state. You're not going to get to a point where there's a strong kind of dialogue between civil society and the market and, and the state um, to drive the country in, in, a, in a new direction when the driving forces are uh, corrupt. Um, so I think that's that's obviously played a huge role in in um, what people believe they can get out of certain processes and from my perspective has definitely fueled a certain type of um, antagonism towards the state or, um, or apathy towards the state. It does play out in different ways on different issues and in different areas. Um, there's some areas that are maybe less corrupt than others and there's still some room for, for um, positive influence and, and working relationships there have been instances where the doors to the corridors of power have opened where there's been a leader on the inside who says hang on what you're saying makes sense and I want to be a part of this and, and let's sit down and talk um, and so I don't think you can make a uniform statement about that either way I think what what has happened as a result of the corruption is kind of a bedding down of um, a particular interpretation of good governments and, and new public management. So this accountability is to the auditors and to processes and to KPIs. And it's very easy for, for a public official to kind of game that system and develop KPIs that are easy to achieve. And, and KPIs and, meaning key, uh, key performance, performance indicators, yeah. 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 Um, and so the accountability becomes to supply chain management processes, auditors and things like that, which is important. Where, where there is a lot of corruption, don't get me wrong. Um, but it, I think the pendulum can swing a little bit too far that way, where we interpret good governance as too much about the good processes and upward accountability, um, and not enough about the governance side of things, which is about collective governance, input, participation, um, and accountability to the citizenship. So let me ask you, what, what can the average citizen or just any citizen, uh, for example, in your country, in South Africa, do to better equip themselves to kind of engage uh, with their political uh, representatives to demand change? Because obviously the, the picture you've laid out now is that democracy isn't so much a dialogue, it's more a tussle. Um, and that's kind of a hard pill to swallow because democracy should be a dialogue, but obviously it's not. So what can what can be done by, by your everyday person? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the mantras that we used um, at my previous organization during the water crisis was connect and communicate. And I think it, it holds true to many uh, situations. So connect with other people around you who have a similar interest and, and similar concerns and communicate about what you're learning about uh, actors in the system, what their interests are, what's driving them, what you're learning about individuals and institutions. Um, use events to kind of mobilize change and, and I mean that in different ways so you can put together your own events that demonstrate what you want and, and I think a lot of change that happens in cities is through the kind of everyday actions of ordinary citizens who go out and do little things and people pick up on it and say hey that's a good idea let's do more of that and some of it is more about using crises and shocks I think what we learned through the water crisis is that 
people say don't waste a good crisis. <laughs> a good crisis can also be used by an incumbent system to kind of extend its boundaries and actually accumulate even more power um, and more control. And and that was a very interesting tension point uh, for Cape Town as, as a system and as a, as a society to kind of go, hang on, we want to use this crisis to learn more about our city government and participate more and not just give away more power um, to top-down decision-making. It's great that you mentioned the water crisis in Cape Town because that definitely captured the world's attention. One of the you know world's famous cities is running out of water. And this is obviously also driven um, in some ways by the process of urbanization, which is you know driven by globalization as well. Um, and we're going to see this across the world. Globalization is going to push urbanization, and that's going to mean a lot more challenges. Um, how do you think this process is going to change the way uh, civil society activists push uh, their agendas and, and, and so on? I think we're definitely learning a lot um, from other cities around the world. Um, I think a lot of sort of groupings in Cape Town refer frequently to what happened in Barcelona, where somebody went from an activist position into being the mayor of the city. And I think a lot of people sort of see that as potentially an aspirational thing for city for, for city uh, leadership, that city leaders can come really truly from a sort of grassroots, so to speak. Um, but none of the things that I've been speaking about throughout are sort of normative towards one sort of outcome or, or the other. I think a lot of the types of tactics that I've subtly referred to, connect and communicate, get to know your institutions, all of that, that can be used by anybody. And we see a, we see a lot of that with uh, NIMBYs, for example, not in my backyard, is saying we don't want affordable housing, we don't want necessary infrastructure development or densification in our particular neighborhood. And I think often that that, that is ha people are using these kind of levers of democracy, they're using the law, they're using access to power. And often it's the people who have that kind of preferential economic power or cultural ease of access to these institutions who can do what I'm talking about much more easily. Yeah, but what you're talking about would only work in democracies, right? Yeah. I mean, that's also the kind yes. of caveat to all of this <laughs> yeah. in the end. Um, let me ask you one, one final question. What responsibility uh, do citizens have in carrying out sustainable development initiatives across cities? Because, you know, as mentioned earlier to you before we got, we got on to, to the podcast is the word role kind of indicates, you know, everyone's an actor and actors can pretend to say something, but the responsibility at least the word has uh, carries a different weight yeah i think it's, uh, that's interesting because i think if we people often feel like they're active by commenting angrily on on something on social media or wearing a cute little pin on their on their on their bat on their um, blazer or something like that um But that's not really participation. And, and a lot of people think participation can slow process or can can slow development. But I think when it comes to the major issues that are facing cities around migration and rapid urbanization and technology disrupting how we do business and, and interact with one another, and of course, climate change. Um, climate change has been on the agenda for decades. And it's a classic example of citizens saying, well, we think you should do this. And the logical response is not is not forthcoming. Um, and so I do think we have a responsibility to learn from areas where change has happened, cities that have done um, taken some quite bold moves to to shift to for example low carbon mobility or what, whatever the issue is and say hang on we want to bring that back home and we have a responsibility to to um, to connect and communicate on, at a broader scale in order to do that. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, you've studied this from the academic perspective. You've been on the ground at the grassroots level. You've worked in advocacy, but still, uh, you know, when you see all of this, people may know what their responsibilities are, but it's still hard for them to change their habits. Why do you think that's the case, even though they see a burning house and they see, you know, in this case, as you said, climate change is a classic example, but still people do things that they know it's they are better not to do, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's, qu that's quite, a <laughs> quite a great philosophical question. One of, one of the best ways that somebody demonstrated to me why change is hard was uh, it was a game that we were made to play in a group and, and we were told to uh, face each other and kind of observe each other and then say and then turn our backs to each other and change one thing about our appearance and keep repeating this exercise until somebody felt so uncomfortable that they stopped. And what was interesting about this is that very often the first thing that people thought of of a way to change their appearance was to remove something. So instead of rolling up a sleeve, they'd take their whole jacket off or something. So eventually they become uncomfortable because they're about to stand yeah. there naked. <laughs> but but it, it, it was an interesting exercise because it demonstrated that people often associate change with loss. And, and so we we often are what's stopping us from even a small change is that there's there's a fear that we're about to lose something we're about to lose uh, some aspect of our independence or our comfort or a relationship or power or something like that and so i think part of the role of people who are leaders in 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 change whether they be uh, officials or, or political leaders because they are people leading good change on both sides um, or activists or business leaders is to really demonstrate how change can be about gaining something um, and to make that slightly more tangible and, and explicit um, and and address the fear of loss more directly That's a fantastic example, and perhaps we should get our political leaders to play this game and just remind them, please don't take off all your clothes. <laughs> and there's a different way to approach things. Jody, Jody Alamaya, thank you so much for joining us on the Global Futures Podcast. It was a pleasure having you. Thanks, Joel. This episode of Global Futures Podcast was presented by me, Joel Sandu, and produced by Sonia Sugrubova with support from Evan Yoshimoto from the Global Public Policy Institute. Our guest today was Jody Alamaya. For a full list of global governance futures products, including scenario reports, opinion pieces, interviews, and other podcasts, visit ggfutures.net forward slash analysis.